Hey guys, Chris here. Uh, just wanted to make a note before we start this week's episode. Uh, last week's episode ran a bit long. We're kind of still working through the way we do these things. Um, so in the future, don't expect a track-by-track track rundown uh, because even on a small album, that takes forever. And we've got a couple of double albums in the list, so we definitely don't want any three or four hour episodes uh, because I can't stay awake through them any more than you could. So we just wanted to let you know and ask you guys to have some patience with us while we kind of figure out how to self-moderate. Um, we adults are still learning that. Uh, so thanks. Hope you all enjoy this week's episode on Dangerous by Michael Jackson. Nineteen ninety one was a tumultuous year in the world. The Soviet Union collapsed, Nirvana released their most popular album, Nevermind, and Queen Elizabeth II became the first English monarch to formally address a joint session of Congress. Beauty and the Beast became the first animated feature film to be nominated for the Best Picture Oscar. Closer to home, my future wife swallowed a nickel. I ran away from home launching a county-wide manhunt that lasted several hours, and shortly after my parents impounded my bike, I got behind the wheel of my grandparents' 1977 Cadillac, backed it into a light pole, and then crashed it through the garage of my parents' house. While I was busy being a bad three-year-old, Michael Jackson was busy being very dangerous. That's right, we're talking about Michael Jackson's 1991 studio album, Dangerous Today, on Two Dudes and Tunes. Drop the needle, Chris. Welcome to Two Dudes and Tunes. I'm one of the dudes, Wood, and I'm joined by my other dude, Chris, how's it going, Chris? Uh, I'm peeling. That's disgusting! That's how it's going today. I am peeling as though I had a sunburn. Uh, the attentive listeners will remember that I got myself a tattoo on Friday, and I did go through with it. I did not chicken out. I don't have half a sailing ship tattooed on my, my arm. Uh, but it's peeling, and it's... It's irritating. It's worse, I would say, than the pain of getting the thing because it doesn't look right right now. And it will look good. I'm taking care of it, but it's kind of irritating me. But other than that, I'm doing good. How are you doing? Oh, man, I'm doing pretty great. Uh, I watched my uh, four-month-old child roll over twice the other day, so uh, I'd say life's on the up and up. Hey, He'll be doing dishes in no time. <laughs> oh, I'm sure he's going to love his chores when they come around. Oh, uh, yes. Every child loves chores. Yes, sir. Hey, uh, did you get a chance to listen to uh, Barnes Courtney and uh, Bishop Briggs last week? I did. I did, as a matter of fact. And I liked it. I don't think it's... Both of those albums are similarly not my kind of jam. I think they're both really well produced. Like I thought both of them in their own ways had a lot of consistency from track to track, but they managed to mix things up between songs, you know, like they were both really interesting, but just both not the kind of music that I listen to. Mm -hmm. Um, but I did really, I listened to both of them all the way through with nice headphones, uh, with both ears in. And I, I really enjoyed the experience of listening to them, even if it was something I wasn't going to listen to a ton in the future. Gotcha. No, that's perfectly fair. Well, and then uh, I guess midweek last week, I sent you uh, an album that I'd been listening to throughout the week, uh, Paul Cother's Room 41. And you slashed my hopes and dreams by saying you'd known about them for forever. <laughs> I, I hadn't known about him for forever. And to be honest with you, I don't even remember how I dis discovered Paul Cawthon, but I, he's a lot of fun. He reminds me a little bit of Waylon Jennings. Mm -hmm. I feel like, I don't know if it's his voice, but 
Yeah, I I like his stuff. I need to listen to that album you sent me more because I'm familiar with his first two full lengths, but not this one. So I'm pretty sure I described him to you as it's if Billy Gibbons and uh, uh, Johnny Cash had had a baby and he was raised by uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan. It's a hell of a combination. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty that's pretty accurate. I would have to say he he is that entertaining and then some. Awesome, man. Well, what else you got? What else indeed? Oh, okay. So this is kind of fun. I had texted you earlier this week about a, I don't want to call them a country band because they're kind of, they do a lot of different styles in their music, but a band that Megan had showed me maybe like four-ish years ago called Jamestown Revival. Mm-hmm. And this past weekend, we were just driving around, uh, trying to keep ourselves entertained and get out of the house because like most people, we've been just kind of cooped up. And so we listened to all three of their albums. When we had first heard of this band, they only had one album out uh, called Utah but they've released a couple of albums since then. Uh, the education of a wandering man and San Isabel. Um, and all three of their albums are really good. Um, really enjoyable kind of familiar territory for me. A lot of Southern rock textures, but Mm -hmm. also a lot of down home country. There's banjo on all their albums. There's, lap steel and they kind of each individual album goes in different directions and so i rediscovered that band uh uh kind of over the week just been listening to them on my phone and really enjoying it so i recommend them to our listeners and i already recommended it to you but um musically that's kind of what's been bouncing around in my head besides this week's album of course nice well i will definitely uh hit you up next week with uh, my thoughts on them uh, when I get some time to listen to them a little bit later. Awesome. So I had a new idea for a reoccurring bit or segment we could do. And I don't know if it needs to be every week, um, and I'll explain why. So this, this afternoon I was driving back from work from my lunch break and heard a song on the radio that I like kind of liked it wasn't like amazing but I kind of liked it but I looked at the the radio display you know Mm -hmm. on my dash the Mm -hmm. little computer screen or whatever and I was greeted with like one of the dumbest band names ever (laughs) period okay and so what I am suggesting to you is that we have a bad band name bit Whenever we hear one, I don't want us to go looking for them because, well, I mean, we'd have segments for forever, but I don't want it to be like searching out the kill of the week, you know, Mm -hmm. but I do think you and I probably listen to the radio enough that we would hear or at least hear about one every now and again. So this band, um, it's Eddie Van Halen's son, Wolfgang Van Halen. (laughs) And the name of the band, like Wolfgang Van Halen or even Wolfgang would be pretty cool, right? Yeah. But the name of his group is Mammoth WVH. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like a radio station. You're listening to 91.3 WVH the Mammoth. <laughs> like it's just so dumb. That's awesome. It made me it made my like it didn't make my blood boil, but I was like, man, that's so dumb. And you know, like, since he's Van Halen's son, nobody was like, uh, excuse me, Mr. Wolfgang, that's a bad idea. We shouldn't do that. Maybe we should aim our directions in some other direction. Uh, or or go by Mammoth, too. Like, Mammoth would be a cool band name. I don't know if it exists or not, but Mammoth W-V-H. So, I don't know if you want to keep your ear to the ground for bad band names, but... That is a bit that I think we should bring back. I can like write a little music stab for it and yeah. we can uh, have expense at others, uh, others, uh, bad names. Kind of like that. Yeah, let's do it. Sweet. 
Before we get started with today's album, if you like what you're hearing on our podcast and want to help us out, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We are still working to learn this platform and strive to bring you entertaining content every week. You can help us improve, and those ratings and reviews will help others find our show in the future. As the reviews start coming in, Chris and I will be reading them and taking any feedback you have to offer. We may even start reading reviews in a special review segment every week. If you have any thoughts on an episode or want to contribute to our discussion, feel free to reach out to us through our contact form on our website, twodudesandtunes.com, or email us at twodudesandtunes at gmail.com. All letters, all spelled out. All righty. You ready to jump into Dangerous, Chris? Let's do it. I'm ready. All right, Chris. So here we are with Michael Jackson's Dangerous. Uh, real quickly, uh, what did uh, what did you think? I think this was the first time you'd ever listened to a Michael Jackson album, let alone Dangerous. You know, it, it's really weird. This is the first Michael Jackson album I've sat down and listened to every single track on. They're, you know, it's Michael Jackson. He's everywhere. Mm-hmm. He's in film and television. He's in commercials. He's on the radio. Uh, but yeah, it. I had an interesting experience. I don't want to spoil my review. Um, but I was kind of conflicted. There was some of this album that I really liked and some of it that I didn't. Um, you want to give some background on the album before we start tearing yeah. into it? Yeah, absolutely. So this was Michael Jackson's eighth studio album. Uh, what's really notable about this album um, is that it was a huge break from his normal album. Uh, He totally took a different process. Instead of pairing up with Quincy Jones, who had produced his seven albums before this, he went in a totally different direction. He locked himself into a studio for a year um, and recorded more than 70 songs for this album and ended up picking the top 14 tracks that he kind of liked. But You sit down and think about that. He spent a year in a recording studio creating content for an album that 80% of it didn't ever see the light of day. Um, A lot of those tracks ended up on some of his other albums or in his posthumous releases in the last few years. But Dangerous was really the synthesization of his own creative process. Uh, he funded this album entirely on his own uh, during the production phase. So his studio costs were about $4,000 a day for a year. He spent more than $10 million of his own money. And towards the end of his production cycle on it, he signed a contract with Sony for $65 million to deliver the final album before the end of 91. That, that amount of money is staggering. It blows me away to think, you know, because like if you look at music production today, I can sit down and and if I had some friends and some mics, um, I could bang out an album. It's not going to be Michael Jackson's Dangerous, but you can do things for relatively low cost. So to imagine $4,000 a day for what did you say, a year? For a year. Oh, that is staggering. I I mean, if anybody's going to have the money, it's going to be Michael Jackson, but still. Well, you think back to it, too. At this point in his career, he was the king of pop. He was the guy in pop music, and he was, like you said, all over everything. He had something like a $120 million deal with Pepsi as their spokesman, um, and they toured with him. They did everything with him, but he was like the first mega star with all the mega endorsement deals. Um, So he was playing with money that even today, you know, 30 years later is big money. You would think he could afford a better sponsor than Pepsi. <laughs> well, they afforded him, that's for sure. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I guess it's the other way around. Well, and uh, I think what was interesting about this, too, was his decision, I guess, from media sources and reviews in the past, he had kind of been hailed as a one-trick pony. All of his music was kind of the same. All of his albums kind of had the same tone and meter to them. And so his decision to not work with Quincy Jones on this album was considered pretty, um, pretty revolutionary for him. 
a lot of reviewers considered it his blackest album ever. And when you listen to some of the other albums he had produced uh, leading up to this, you could kind of get that. Um, the themes are a lot a lot more in line with what pop music in the African-American community was doing in the early 90s. He worked with Bill Bottrell, Bruce uh, Sweden, and Teddy Riley as producers for this album, for the most part, with Teddy Riley being the, the top-billed producer on seven of the 14 tracks that made the final album. And I think that was part of the reason that he was able to kind of reinvent pop. You sent me a... Uh, an article earlier this week that talked about this album being the rebirth of pop. And a lot of that can probably be attributed to Teddy Riley's use of uh, industrial soundscapes and really intense, uh, I guess the music style is called new Jack swing, which was kind of yeah, flashing the pan. Uh, what were your thoughts on that? Some of my feelings about this album were that it was both dated and also felt super current. And I think that is a lot of uh, that Teddy Riley, I mean, his influence and that style of music is what made this album kind of feel both ways to me. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the really like tightly compressed rhythm track, the, um, the gated snare, all well, the, the like, of like, the heavy use of the drum machine. Like yeah, the, it's not yeah. a gated snare. It is a fake. It's just snare. a drum machine. Yeah. yeah. Well, and in all of that, all of that stuff on the one hand, I was like, man, this really does feel like it, you know, it feels like I'm in a mall somewhere in 1991 and it's playing over the speakers. But also the thought I had listening to this album was, he wrote the book on like pop and hip hop for the next 30 years or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like it, you know, you listen to this album and you hear people like Britney Spears or Justin Timberlake, even like some of, um, uh, Maroon five, like their poppy stuff. Mm -hmm. it, like this feels like where it began. And even if it comes off a little dated to my ears anyway, it, it was interesting. It was a fascinating listen in that respect, you know, and it's interesting that new Jack swing, as far as I know, didn't last very long, but you know, people certainly cherry picked the elements out of it that lasted. This album kind of, sets the tone for basically what became the mid nineties and late nineties pop pop scene. Uh, oh, absolutely. What, one of the things that I thought when I was listening to it is it sounded a lot like the theme music to the Nickelodeon TV show, all that, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's got that same like shuffling beat. There's like a rap in the middle of it. Like even into, ooh, kind of the the extra spaces that aren't directly about pop music, you mm -hmm. know, like a theme song for Nickelodeon's attempt at SNL yeah. was affected by his music. And it's, you know, I, I don't know. It, it did, it did feel very, um, I don't know if prescient is the right word, but uh, it was interesting. It was an interesting listen for sure. Well, and another interesting thing about this album, kind of, you mentioned... Uh, the the rapping on Nickelodeon. This is the first time Michael Jackson actually rapped in an album. What what? Oh, this sounds terrible. But what song did he rap on? Because I felt like in my head I called it spoken word. I guess mm -hmm. I didn't. You know, because I my con my conception of rap is is something very different than what it was back in the day. So which track was that that he rapped on? I believe that was on uh, Dangerous, the title track on the album, where he kind of lays down a verse. It's not very long, but it is definitely a rap. Oh, see, that's that's interesting. I wonder, I wonder if back in the day people heard that and thought like, "Oh, why is Michael Jackson rapping?" Or if they were like into it, you know? Because I like it went over my head. Not that I'm a contemporary listener, but 
you yeah. know, I like I saw that I heard like my mind translated that into spoken word yeah. a little bit more than rap, you know. You know, it's funny. I uh, actually uh, spend Wednesday afternoons with my dad. We uh, hang out and just kind of chat about life. And uh, he, awesome. he and I were talking yesterday about this album uh, because this album is actually one of the earlier albums I remember from life. Um, I would have been about three and a half years old when this came out uh, in the fall of... Uh, no kidding. Yeah, exactly. You have such a good memory for well, that stuff. Well, so one of my earliest memories uh, as a three and a half year old is laying on my back in my parents' living room and my dad had a turntable and a full stereo system and he played this album on vinyl and on the track for black and white, uh, it starts with uh, like this very AM radio sounding rock track and then this dad beating on the door, screaming at his kid oh, to turn it off. Yeah, yeah. Well, at the time, my parents had a trained boxer uh, dog that when he heard that yelling, he just went off. Ooh, a puppy! Uh, bark, 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 bark. Uh, he got really defensive. Huh. He would growl and he'd bark and he'd get really angry. And so for a long time, my dad did it just to antagonize the dog. He thought it was funny. Oh, no. And so That's he and I hilarious. were talking about that yesterday. And I had asked him, you know, if he could remember back to when this album came out. And I mean, he was obviously a Michael Jackson fan. He bought this album on vinyl. Uh, yeah. And I can, I don't remember the rest of the album. I remember the beginning of Black and White and the dog barking and all that. But I asked him kind of what his thoughts on the album were beforehand, and maybe the next time we get some crossover, I'll record his response and we'll drop it in here so you can kind of hear what he has to say about it. But he remembered it being just totally revolutionary to his music experience. Hmm. And what was interesting was when I started talking about some of the issues I have with it now that I'm an adult and listened to it, and I'm about the age he would have been then when he was listening to it, he uh, he said he was going to have to listen to it again and come back to me with you know oh, thirty more no. years of experience in life. So hopefully you didn't just kill your dad's one of your dad's favorite <laughs> albums. That's really funny. He admits that it wasn't his favorite at the time. He just remembers it changing his mindset about Michael Jackson about what pop music could be at the time. And my dad was uh, much more of a classic rock guy who had bought the the thriller album and you know here and there a couple of other michael jackson albums over time but this album opened him to where he was interested in being a fan of like 90s pop but he was never mm. a big 90s pop fan so you know it's interesting one of the notes um and it might pop up in the review section when we look at what the critical response was one of the notes that somebody made was that the style of it, the styles represented on the album were really varied, mm -hmm. which was interesting to me because I, I kind of disagreed a little bit. I, I kind of felt like a lot of it was influenced by new Jack swing. You mm -hmm. know, a lot of those textures were consistently represented in each song. And, Outside of um, outside of like give in to me and then will you be there and keep the faith, you know, it all sounded pretty homogenous to me, which was, I guess, one of the problems I had with it. So it's interesting that it kind of shifted your dad's paradigm. I, I kind of wonder how much of that has to do with just being a modern listener and taking all those different influences for granted, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the, the paradigm shifting as far as what pop music could be because of new Jack swing more so than it was such groundbreaking messaging. It was the yeah. sound of it itself. The, the industrial soundscapes, the, the hard hitting drum machine kind of, thing the, the very yeah, synthetic sound that's what i'm saying like a lot of it sounded consistent 
consistently that way. And what some of the reviewers made it sound like is that Michael Jackson was branching out in all these different genres. And I, I guess I just didn't, maybe I missed that or I did, I haven't, I'm not familiar enough with the album yet. So I don't think it's necessarily the fact that it's different genres per se, but I think it's wildly bipolar messaging. Oh, so, so it's more of like thematic content you think is like, yeah. So what's like really half the album, varied. you know, kind of going back to our discussion from the wall a few weeks ago where you've got this kind of fractured messaging going on and half of the album is a pop album with really poppy kind of themes. And then the other half of it is like a social justice church choir with some of that new Jack swing thematic elements going in the background. But the difference between black or white, which is all about, you know, coming together and being in a post-racial America and given to me are two just totally bipolar concepts in my mind. Yeah. yeah. Um, And We'll talk a little bit about that in the review when I get to that point in a little bit, but I think that's where a lot of these reviewers were coming from. In the past, Jackson had kind of picked a theme for his albums, and they followed that theme for better or for worse. And this album, and maybe this is a byproduct of you record 70 tracks for an album and you got to pick the best 14 to throw on a on a vinyl, mm-hmm. um, just doesn't have a lot that to- constant theme. Exactly. There's not that cohesion because you're picking from 70 plus tracks. Yeah. Well, and I've got the note here in our show doc. It's almost the antithesis of last week's album, Flamingo, where with the exception of those last two tracks in Flamingo, that album has a consistent theme and meter and message that ties together really, really well. Whereas this one has really two distinct messages. Yeah, yeah, this album is very all over the place thematically. This album felt, like at first when I was listening to it, I was like, man, all these tracks sound the same. But kind of the more I dug into it, the more I felt that way and the less I felt that way. Mm -hmm. And I think that has a lot to do with the themes of the lyrics because the first like three or four tracks are all, well, like jam is jam has a little bit of a social social message, but it all kind of sounds like dance hall music, and a lot of it is for, you know, a lot of it is about rather, you know, the ladies or what what yeah. have you, whatever you want to say. Um, but it it also feels honest for that, like. That's what Michael Jackson does really well. But then when he launches into personal stuff too, it also struck me as being really honest. And I don't know if that has, I feel like that has to do with Michael Jackson being a relatively complex person, you know? Well, and because it is scattershot, it's all over the place, but it also all felt genuine to me. And I think that speaks to the creative genius of Michael Jackson, regardless of what you think about him as a person, especially in light of the latter years of his life and Mm -hmm. the allegations and accusations that were leveled against him. um, The man is just a creative force to be reckoned with. I worked in a position at my employer uh, before the role I'm in now that required me to be a creative director for uh, video projects. And I did about 200 projects a year uh, do or supervised about 200 projects a year. And that is just so creatively draining to give something its own unique feel every time you turn around. And I can't even imagine. Well, yeah. And I was doing it for a salary. This guy's doing it for $65 million to Sony and he's uh-huh. just pumping uh-huh. out stuff. And I think uh. if you're pumping out that much content, you've got to be real. You've got to be in tune with who you are and what you are. And the entire production staff just has to fall in line and make it fit your creative vision. And that's one of the things a lot of people don't like Michael Jackson's breathy delivery. He's pitchy. He's all over the place uh, all the time, but it's very (laughs) real and it's very him. 
And a lot of people have tried to copy him over the years, and they fail miserably because that's Michael Jackson, and yes. you ain't Michael Jackson. Yeah, it's it's interesting. That's a, a lot. A lot of the feelings I had about this album really boil down to like what a dichotomy he is as a person, but even as a performer. Mm-hmm. I have notes about his voice sounding super brittle. Mm-hmm. or super delicate, but then he's capable of like growling and getting real angry and projecting, you know, he has all these different sides to him that even if he is, and and I would even say like, he doesn't sound too bitchy to me. Like sometimes he might be, but, and, and that might just be his charisma selling it, you know, but the, you know, Michael Jackson contains multitudes. And that's one of the things that I think kept me from being super bored with this album. Cause some of it did just kind of wash over me as like, this isn't really for me, but some of it really stuck. And even some of the stuff I didn't like, I was like, well, I mean, he kind of sold it really well just by his singing, you know? Well, and no matter if I like something or not on this album, I will admit it's very well written it's very mm-hmm. catchy. There is something to every song that, be it the music, the hook, the something he says lyrically, or the way he phrases something, that just works on almost every song. Um, and to talk about that a little bit, I want to talk about the singles. Most albums that go out into the world get one, maybe two singles, and they're on the charts, and they flounder around for a while. This album was on the charts for almost four years. And it had nine out of the 14 songs on this album made it onto the charts as a single. Wow. That's over half the album. Yes. And so I'm going to read to you right quick. A crazy batting average. I'm going to read to you right quick the list of the singles. Black or White, which was in November of 91. Remember the Time, January of 92. In the Closet, April of 92, Jam, July of 92, Who Is It, August of 92, Heal the World, November of 92, Given to Me, February of 93, Will You Be There, January of 93, and Gone Too Soon, December of 93. This album was all over the place. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with just the marketing genius that was Michael Jackson, the showman. Yeah. Once he created content, it wasn't just out there for people to go out. He promoted relentlessly. Um, so do you want to talk about the world tour? Or do you have anything else to say about the album itself before I start talking about the tour? Because I'm excited no, about this part. I want you to tell me about the tour because I'm re- that's it's. Uh, that kind of stuff is always as interesting as the music itself. So everybody knows Michael Jackson could sing and dance. And going back to your comment a little bit earlier about his voice sounding brittle, but then he could grunt. If you watched Michael Jackson just walk, he looked like a fragile, brittle person. But that man can dance like nobody has ever danced before. And even today, you look at the likes of Justin Timberlake, who's probably the best dancer currently in pop music. He's nothing compared to what Michael Jackson was in 93's Dangerous Tour. You know, it's it's interesting you say that. I watched the um, that documentary they made about him quite a few years ago. I can't remember the name of it. And that kind of opened my eyes to what people enjoyed about Michael Jackson because he's not just a singer or a songwriter. He's a performer. And it was it was mind-opening to me to watch him dance. It helped me understand, like, oh, this is why millions of people flock to his shows so, so talk more about the tour. Cause I, I just wanted to throw it in like his, it, it really is incredible. His public persona versus how he is as a performer. Yeah. So, um, after his previous tour, he had, uh, which would have been the bad world tour in 1987 to 1989, 
Uh, he promised that he would never tour again. He was done with touring. But, of course, like a lot of people, the allure of making huge profits dragged him right back into it. Especially because on this album, uh, his song Heal the World was part of a fundraising campaign for his uh, children's foundation. And he wanted to raise $100 million for that foundation. And this t- tour... 100% of the proceeds of this tour beyond the cost of producing it went into that uh, charity and raised almost $100 million for it. So that's what got him to come out of the touring retirement and get out there. It was 69 dates, none of them in the United States. It was all South America, Asia, Russia, Europe, and I believe he had one African date. Oh, so it was really a world tour. Sometimes world tour means we did London. Europe yeah, and we Japan, did London. And then you're done. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no, so it was really a world tour. And his big deal was he wanted to play in places like Morocco, places where his, his uh, children's charity was spending all their money uh, so that he could see the work that they were doing. So that, that was is really deal. cool. That's, a, that's actually very admirable. It's interesting to me. That and of he had such like a, a great reason for it. Exactly. And of course, Pepsi signed on as a sponsor, even in the countries where they weren't allowed to sell Pepsi. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> That's so insane. I love it. Um, so let's talk about Michael Jackson, the showman, in terms of getting his show to uh, a site. Uh, originally, he had... Not purchased, but he had leased uh, an Antonov uh, jumbo jet, the the largest jet in the world. He could not get it licensed to land on most runways that they were trying to get it to. So he ended up leasing a FedEx Boeing 747 instead. Wow. So (laughs) that is crazy. So when you think of big, this guy was like, what's the biggest thing I can buy or lease to, to get our stuff around the equipment took 65 trucks to transport from location to location. It included wow. a, it included a thousand lights, 10 miles of electrical cable, nine jumbotrons, 168 speakers, and two tons of costumes. Two wow. tons of two costumes. Two tons of clothing. Yes. I can't imagine like 50 pounds of clothing. That's incredible. Well, and when you when you see the outfits that he was wearing and the dancers were wearing and the band was wearing. It's crazy. Like they've got some crazy costumes and he went through in the 22 songs, something like 18 costume changes. Wow. Good grief. That's like what one or two songs per outfit or one outfit for every couple songs. Exactly. And he did the, the changes live the show took about two and a half hours to run, uh, unedited, unaltered, and they would play refrains from the prior song, and a backup dancer or a team of backup dancers that looked just like him would come out and dance uh, sections of songs. So he'd come out and sing the chorus in one costume, and during the bridge, a backup dancer would be filling in as him, and everybody would think it was him, and they'd disappear into the smoke, and out the other side of the smoke, the real Michael Jackson would come out and sing the next wow. song. Wow. that's how they do it. God, I gotta stop giving these things away. So, Golly. very intricate choreography to hide all these costume changes and all this different stuff where people didn't really realize he was changing costumes until, boom, there's Michael and he's got a different costume on. That is an astounding magic trick. That's so clever. You could only get away with that performing to thousands of people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that you can't do so that in a coffee neat. shop. nobody in starbucks wants to watch me change clothes behind a screen between every song and i don't think we could find a stunt double for you no no none of them are hairy enough (laughs) so when uh when this tour was going on it happened in three legs three major legs europe asia and the the russian african leg roughly so In Bucharest, HBO signed on for more than $10 million directly to Michael Jackson to record the the concert stop in Bucharest on the condition that they wouldn't release any of the footage or do anything until the tour ended. But when the tour ended, 
they released the complete concert. It runs about two hours uh, long. You can actually watch it on YouTube today, and I highly recommend if you want to experience as close to what it is you a Michael Jackson concert. This is peak Michael Jackson. It's worth the two hours to listen to it. Yeah, I really, I want to sit down and watch it. It's crazy to think that HBO was that big back then. Um, And I don't know, $10 million in entertainment money nowadays probably isn't much, but that is so much money. Well, it's so much money when you consider that was Michael Jackson's fee. That wasn't getting the Uh cameras and equipment there. That wasn't getting the the producing fees or any of the production work. That was just the check they wrote Michael to show up. Oh, man. And that so, had to have been the hugest fake check to present him with. <laughs> well, it is worth it. And I sent it to you because I wanted you to watch the first like five minutes of it to see how Michael Jackson started a concert because it fades into what we're going to talk about here in a second, which is the exhaustion and the toll that this put on his body. Um, the way this concert starts for people who haven't seen it before is the stage is empty, the lights dim down, the music to jam starts, which has that very prominent drum beat. And out of the ground, like a toaster, he slingshots about 15 feet into the air and then lands, (laughs) sticks the landing, and stands there staring, striking a pose for about 90 seconds and doesn't say or do a thing. And the crowd just goes nuts. And the music is just doing the drum beat to jam the whole time. And then it goes. That's incredible. But I look at that and go, hey, he rehearsed that probably dozens of times before they ever hit the tour. And then over the course of three years on tour doing this, he did it Mm. at 70 shows, 69 shows. Like the physical toll on that. That's got to be. Yeah, that's got to be hard on a body. To be like catapulted into the air and then land and be thinking about, I got to stick the landing so I don't hurt myself and I got to stand here. Like, that's incredible. Well, and all of that kind of added up. And during the second leg of the tour, he did end up uh, collapsing on stage from exhaustion and had several tour dates rescheduled because of that. Did you happen to have any info on how much tickets cost? I mean, it's to a bunch of different countries, right? So the cost is going to vary, but I'm just, I want to know how much it costs to go to a Michael Jackson show like this. that was two hours long. You know, I don't know, but what's crazy about it is when you look at the audience, like at the Bucharest show, there's probably 75 or 80,000 people at this show. So on top of him being like immensely popular, it's, it's just massive. It's bigger than most of the stadium shows that were going on in the early nineties. I want to know how much it costs to go to a show where Michael Jackson changes clothes 18 different times and like get shot out of the stage because that has to be just hella expensive. About three fifty. Ooh, man, that's <laughs> steep. No matter whether you account for inflation or not, that's too much money. Nice. Well, Hey, so next thing on the Michael Jackson as a showman thing this album had been out for a couple of years uh, at the point that Super Bowl 27 rolled around, but I wanted to talk about Super Bowl 27 for a little bit, uh, even though it doesn't seem like it's related to this show any. No, please do. So Super Bowl 27 was the first time that the halftime show featured a headline music artist. So Michael Jackson was really, really popular, and the Super Bowl booked him because the broadcasting company, we won't name name names here, was frustrated that their competing broadcasting companies were counter-programming them with big-name bands and whatever to draw television viewers away from the Super Bowl. Hmm. So the 93 Super Bowl was the first time that the Super Bowl got rid of the marching bands and all the local-themed events and said, we're putting Michael Jackson on the stage at halftime Tune in and check it out. More than 133 million people tuned in to watch it. And this was the first time during the Super Bowl that the halftime show had higher ratings than the game did. And that trend, uh, that trend has continued to today. That's a big part of the Super Bowl is the halftime show. We all know that. 
And that started yeah. here at Super Bowl 27 in 1993 with Michael Jackson. Hmm. I had no idea that this started with him. That makes so much sense. I mean, who who is going to be a bigger draw um, then or now, you know? Exactly. And I think it's interesting that some of the biggest moments in Super Bowl history happened with one of the Jackson siblings. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> so when people ask you, you know, everybody's got a 9-11 story. Do you remember 9-11? But I feel like everybody also has a, do you remember where you were when uh, Justin Timberlake and Janet Jackson made fools of themselves on national television? There you go. And if you're interested in seeing the Super Bowl 27 halftime show, it is also available on YouTube. And it also f- features him toaster strudeling himself out of the stage and jumping. <laughs> and that took a lot of guts. This is on network oh, TV live. Yeah, He launched it. He stuck the landing and he stood there for about 90 seconds on network TV. And I'm sure the director of the show was oh, going, do something, man. We're paying yeah. you <laughs> dead air. This dead air is terrible. Stop it. Oh, the fans were eating it up though. The crowd, it was at the Rose bowl that year. And the Rose bowl is just exploding with excitement it was really good. So worth, it's about 15 minutes long. It's worth watching. And it gives you a good taste of what a Michael Jackson concert would have been if you don't want to waste two hours watching the HBO special. Oh, I want to watch both. I'm real curious. Uh, Super Bowl halftime shows are, are can be really interesting. I remember watching Prince's halftime show, mm-hmm. and that was incredible. When he started playing Purple Rain, and it started raining and he just soldiered on like that. That is really cool. But I've, I'm interested now to watch both that HBO special and try and find his halftime show. Well, they will both be incredible. in the show notes, so you don't have to look too hard. Sweet. Well, Chris, we've talked about Michael Jackson, the showman. We've talked about Dangerous. Let's talk about what the critics had to think about this album in the time that it was released. So before I even get to what some of the critics said, this album sold over 32 million copies worldwide. It was certified eight times platinum by RIA in August of 2018. Um, It received four Grammy nominations in 93. So not even the same year it was out. It just, the popularity of it lasted so long that it received nominations like what, what is that? So like two years, two years after it came out, yep. uh, it was nominated, uh, like I said, for four Grammys. It won Best Engineered Album Non-Classical, and uh, Jackson received a Grammy Legend Award, which what that's probably like a, like a, lifetime, a lifetime achievement. Let's see, it received a Billboard Music Award for Best Worldwide Album and Best Worldwide Single for Black or White. And this is an album that Michael Jackson himself viewed as a failure because he wanted to outdo Thriller. Thriller, which sold, what, like 50 million? 50 million copies of that album. So he expected Dangerous to sell, or, or at least wanted it to sell, 100 million albums which no, like nobody's done that. Not, nobody at all has done that. I think that if anybody could have done it, it would have been Michael Jackson. So maybe he wasn't being yeah, too unrealistic, true. but I can understand how he <laughs> feels like a failure after raking in all that I mean, money. His, his confidence is earned, but it's also a little absurd. But yeah, this, this album won lots of accolades monetarily and critically and in almost every arena it seems well and it was almost universally well received i believe it's metacritic rating is like a 91 i may be wrong on that i'm quoting it from something i read earlier this week but really high you know a minus b plus rating almost across the board alan stone uh, alan light from rolling stone said jackson was a man no longer a man child confronting his well-publicized demons and achieving transcendence through his performance on the album that rose to the impossible challenge set by Thriller during moments when Riley's production dance rhythms prove a perfect match match 
for Jackson's clipped, breathy, up-tempo voice. And Robert Christgau from The Village Voice deemed it Jackson's most consistent album since Off the Wall, a step up from bad, even if its hook craft is invariably secondary to its vocal mannerisms occasionally annoying. While he felt Jackson was too insistent on the faith, hope, and charity message songs, Chris Gow applauded the production's abrasively unpredictable rhythms and the sex and romance songs, calling them the most plausible of Jackson's career. And finally, John Parlis was less receptive from the New York Times. He called it Jackson's least confident solo album yet, calling it uh, dogmatically ordinary. And the lyrics of the love songs writings, he said they seemed to be based on demographic research rather than the experience or his imagination. Yeah, some of the uh, criticism uh, leveled at him about this album, I kind of agreed with. Uh, Chris Willman, writing for the Los Angeles Times, said, In the album, Jackson wanted to transcend all demographics, race, age, nationality, and be a role model for children and a bad cat at the same time. The album was mostly good, expertly made fun, but far from Jackson's best work. Uh, Willman also criticized heal the world as goofily embarrassing and venturing into the realm of self parody, which uh, it's funny that he calls that album or that track out specifically because boy, that was my least favorite part of this album. Heal the world was just nails on a chalkboard. So I Um, agree with you. I think that is quite possibly the worst Michael Jackson song out there. And there are some doozies on his posthumous albums. Like there are some tracks that should have never been released on those. And this one, he was so far behind and so hard behind going back to the Super Bowl 27 show. It ends with heal the world. And it has, it has like 2,500 kids come out from the stands and get up there and sing in the choir. And the whole the whole stadium turns over placards that were under the seats and it's like pictures of little kids drawn in like crayon taking up the whole stadium. And they have Mm. this giant inflatable globe and it's just, it's, it's the kind of song you expect to be played at an underfunded church that the music minister wrote to raise money for like an in-house shoebox drive. Like it's just painfully familiar. It's so terrible. And it was the one he consistently put up there on all the different shows. He performed it live countless times on TV and it's just so bad. Like you got to wonder if his producer or his publicist was like, this is hurting our credibility so bad. Well, the thing that baffles me about it, because the first thing I thought when I was listening to the album was like, he already did this with, we are the world. Um, well, this and is a came cheap ripoff of we're. This is a cheap yeah. ripoff of "We Are the World." Like it's him trying. And that to, song's not even that good either. <laughs> but it's song, infinitely better really than cloying. this song. And, yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I that was the the note that that reviewer made about he wants to be a bad boy, but he also wants to be like this really positive role model. Um, I definitely agreed with and that was kind of how i felt about the whole thing honestly all right chris i think this is a good time to transition to reviews because i definitely have something i want to say about that in my review but before we do that i want to tell our audience a little bit about our review system just in case they're not familiar we have a patent pending model of one to six guitar strings for our reviews six strings being the perfect album played by the perfect artist and one string being a Wish.com economy acoustic guitar with a loose neck and one piece of two-pound fishing line for a string. What was your review? (laughs) So I didn't even write a review until maybe like half an hour before we started recording tonight because I was of two minds about it. On the one hand, I found a lot of the production style repetitive a lot of the songwriting even not the songwriting but the the song structures it's always intro verse chorus verse chorus and then michael jackson kind of vamping 
over the chorus chords or whatever. But on the other hand, there are some really powerfully personal songs. Um, something like uh, What Is It is a really compelling song about loneliness and kind of the futility of his fame, you know, Jackson says in, in the chorus, and it doesn't seem to matter and it doesn't seem right because the will has brought no fortune. Still, I cry alone at night. Um, other songs like, uh, Will You Be There? They start off with uh, referencing like a classical work and it launches into just this really yearning song about, you know, love and commitment for this person that presumably the narrator of the song is talking to. But there's real material in all of it, whether it's kind of boring and repetitive, like I found some of, you know, like jam, for instance, kind of bored me. Um, but all of it's real. It's all scattershot, but it's all real. And so trying to hold all these things together in my mind, the reception that it had critically, the influence that it's had on countless artists, my personal feelings about it. I didn't really feel comfortable giving it anything less than five out of six strings. Um, I don't think it's perfect, but it is perfectly what it is. Like this album is exactly what Michael Jackson set out for it to be. Or at the very least, he discovered exactly what it was supposed to be over that year of creating it and whittled it down to what it was supposed to be. I dinged it a string because it's not really for me personally, but like it is what it's supposed to be and it felt very honest and some of it is really fun you know there's like a lot of jazzy chord progressions his voice is super compelling on even the weakest tracks and so that's got to be my rating it's five out of six strings on a guitar that isn't mine that i'm borrowing from somebody else because i don't think this album was necessarily targeted to me and it's not something that I think I'm going to keep on my phone, but it was an experience going through it. What about you? How how did you feel about this album? Well, as we mentioned last week, this album was actually on my list. So I have a lot of history with this album going back to when I was, you know, three, four years old. And it had been easily 20 or 25 years since I've listened to this album start to finish before I sat down and listened to it last week for the first time and started listening to it throughout this week and wrapping my mind around it and the message that it was sending. And with that, I kind of have a heavy heart when I was writing this review. It, uh, it hurt a little bit to write it, but here it goes. I feel like this album is a victim of the 1990s, and I understand its influence and its broader impact that it has had on pop music. Um, I think it fed... Everybody from MC Hammer all the way to NSYNC, the Backstreet Boys. I mean, the music that you and I grew up, what was on the radio when we were in high school, it, it found its roots in this album. But for some reason, and it may be the overuse of the drum machines and the lack of real instrumentation throughout it, I felt like the music itself seemed synthetic, almost like it was pretending to be something that it wasn't, that it was trying to live up to some hype that it couldn't quite reach to. And I agree, Michael Jackson is amazing, and he's the one who carries this album more so than the music itself. His delivery and his raw emotion in this album are what makes this album so great. I agree that jam is ridiculously repetitive. I mean, how many times can you yell the word jam over and over and over <laughs> again? Uh, it just, it hurts. But Dangerous came out, of time, came out of time when I was three years old, and some of my earliest memories are tied to those songs. Um, mm. Thinking and reading through these reviews, this album was almost universally lauded when released, and it came out of time when Michael Jackson was untouchable. He was the king of pop. He had huge endorsement deals, 
And this was the zenith of who Michael Jackson would be. And this is who a lot of people remember him as. But we mm-hmm. forget it was in 94, 95, 96, 97, and on into the 2000s that he started having a lot of personal troubles and lawsuits and losing custody of his kids and going through a really brutal divorce and having allegations of child abuse raised against him. And he became a much more um, polarizing figure in the world. And you see a lot of those tendencies almost as a precursor to those events in this album. This album kind of waffles between being uh, a really upbeat, catchy, hooky kind of album that's raised on faith, love, charity, and hope. But then the other half of the albums are Michael Jackson being a creep. Just give in to me. Just just let it happen. Things like that that really raise red flags in retrospect through 2021 eyes looking back on 1993 Michael Jackson. Mm -hmm. And those allegations and those things dogged him for the last 20 years of his life. And today there's still speculation about it. And what makes it really interesting is the amount of people who stand up and defend him still today. People who knew him and knew bubbles, his monkey and which we didn't mention at all. Uh, but then there's also people who still detract from him. And so when I listened to it this week, all of that was kind of weighing down on top of my listening experience of the greater complexity of Michael Jackson. And the fact that this album came out right before his universal appeal kind of collapsed for most of the world. And you ended up with two camps and two ways of thinking about Michael Jackson. So kind of, Kind of with that baggage in tow, I really enjoyed listening to this album. And I really enjoyed reminiscing about some of those early memories in my life. And I treasure those early memories. But really, when I get down and think about it, I kind of have to hold the music at arm's length. It's not that great. It's not that great of an experience as a whole. There are great songs, but it doesn't really flow one into the other because it has so many different messages. And because of that... I rated a three out of six guitar strings. It's, it's perfectly fine. It's good and it's well-made and it's competent, but I think it has underlying issues that were starting to bubble up in Michael Jackson's life. And you're starting to see some of who he became in the latter half of his life. And that's just too much for me to say, okay, this is great. Yeah, I man, it's interesting the ways in which those really toxic acts, aspects of his personality are represented in the music. And I think probably because I had some distance not really knowing that much about him, mm-hmm. I was able to have maybe a little bit more favorable opinion of it mm-hmm. than you did because a lot of his scandal... I, I wouldn't say it didn't affect me, right? Because I, you know, have empathy for the the children and the, the parents of those children who are, you know, still dealing with the consequences of uh, Michael's actions. Um, but I didn't have the, like, emotional attachment to his music. And so it's interesting. I really kind of expected you to really laud this album and for me to be like, ah, it's pop. I don't really, uh, but I feel like we kind of flip flopped uh, my expectations anyway. I hope in my case that it's a sign of growth on my part. The fact that I can reevaluate something that I held. I mean, seriously, some of my earliest memories, three, four years old revolve around listening to this album and my dad playing it while our dog was just barking at the different tunes. And, um, yeah, but I, I just have a hard time as an adult and especially an adult with a four month old baby listening yeah, to it and absolutely. not hearing the red flags and going, Oh yeah, this is mm-hmm. green. So yeah. Yeah. But Hey, we've done another one. We've wrapped up episode four. All that's left, man, is to turn the page on dangerous and figure out what we're listening to next. And I believe we're doing it from your list this time. So let me go over here. 
Okay. So I've got our handy dandy little random number generator and I've got your list pulled up. And so I am going to generate a number uh, when we turn the page. Here we go. Turn the page. Number 22. We're listening next week to 2005's Coldplay album X and Y. All right, so we digested some some real meat and potatoes, and we're moving on to the uh, cake and candy of this whole operation. Yes, man, I am excited. This is a great album. This is one that I I loved as a as a younger person too. So I'm uh, I'm just really jazzed. Good. I'm glad. I'm excited to talk about it too. Awesome, man. We will see you next week. Thank you for listening to Two Dudes and Tunes. 